You're listening to the Your Queer Story podcast, the podcast that inspires peace, love, and radicalism, led by your favorite hosts, Evan Jones and Paul Hobbs. Trigger warning. Our content covers centuries of LGBTQ plus stories, and occasionally we may use outdated language or cover topics that include violence, assault, homophobia, transphobia, as well as other injustices against marginalized communities. Make sure you subscribe and review wherever you are listening, and be sure to follow us on all social media at Your Queer Story. And if you want exclusive content, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. You're here, now let's get queer. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Your Queer Story. Uh, we know you missed us. Did we take a week off last week? No, no we it came just back feels last like week. We did. Yeah, because why. we're recording on a Monday instead of a Saturday, yeah. so everything's a little bit confusing. I don't um, know which end is up. If you listen to our Behind the Queens, you'll understand why things are a little bit crazy right now. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Samantha's just in the background as usual playing whatever she can as loudly as possible. <laughs> At least she's not doing the leaf blower. <laughs> okay, yeah, she wanted to leaf blow during this uh, episode, but we said, please don't. So instead she's like, that's fine, I'll listen to a YouTube video at full volume. I don't even uh, think people hear half of this shit, though, because I always listen for it and I can't hear most of it. Occasionally I hear Stewie bark. Mm-hmm. Well, there, I edit most of it out to the oh. best of my abilities, Okay, but... Um, they're yeah. not that good sometimes. Just depends on the mood I'm in. You get what you get. Sometimes I don't even edit the episode. Yes, we know. <laughs> that, that was that was due to my anxiety, okay? <laughs> okay. And that's mostly under control now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, today we're talking about Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got a couple a couple little things to talk about before yeah, we get into open it. open up. Um, this is your queer story, by the way. We're your hosts. I'm Evan Jones. And I'm the fabulous Paul Hobbs. That's right. And we actually do have our postcards this time because we were supposed to have our postcards last time. We were like, we have our postcards, we're sending them out, and then there was a, an issue. A big, a little bit of a stir up. <laughs> but I'm looking at the postcards, so we got them. They're so actually here, and they're, they're going to get filled out. And guess what? <laughs> if you're a patron, no matter what tier, if you are a current patron, you will be receiving one because you have been the base and the supporters. Um, anybody that joins us today and on, there is a tier that offers you the... Uh, signed, customized, not customized, it's a signed, handwritten postcard yep. with a nice little picture. Um, it's got Marsha P. Johnson. Yeah, it's like, it's a painting of uh, the first, like, Pride March. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a famous picture of Marsha and Sylvia and some white guy. And, um, <laughs> he just happened but, to be on but there. But it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a person, an individual, like, like painted it and, like, mm-hmm. kind of, like, abstracty a little bit. So, um, anyways... Uh, I, I don't know if that's abstract art. I have no it's, idea what abstract <laughs> it's is. Not, it's pictures of, it's a portrait it's, of people. I don't think it's quite, quite portrait either. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's like cute. A, whatever. We it's like coming it. to your mail address <laughs> if we have it. All right. That's what that's I was trying right. to say. Yeah. Um, if you're a Patreon, you're getting a, you get a card and you get a card. And if you want to join our Patreon and listen to our Behind the Queens, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash your queer your story. Queer story. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> two years and you almost got it. <laughs> <laughs> and you can become a Patreon today and you can get access to our Behind the Queens, Coffee with Evan, any other random shit that we decide to throw up there. We're really close to this. Uh, I think we need like one or two more patrons and then we're going to hit another goal we'll run another poll and then you get to vote what video you want to see us do That's you want right. to see us do the bean boozled challenge again you want to see us do chubby bunny challenge you want to see us do the cinnamon challenge we have those videos on there right not the uh, chubby bunny. yeah like we the have, ones we've actually yeah. done there on there so we have like older videos on there we've got um our weekly stuff all kinds of things Everything goes back into the queers. Yes. Um, Also, if you are listening on iTunes or anywhere, please. I know iTunes is dead. I'm never going to stop calling it that because I can't remember. Get with the times, Um, old man. Wherever you listen, please drop us a review. If you listen on Spotify, I know they don't have a review system. If you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or even just give us a little tweet you know that all of those help us um the ratings go into their weird algorithm that decides what shows up when people search for things so the more you vote the more questions we can invite into the family that's right help us beat the algorithm 
Yeah, because yeah. I don't know how to do that. You're doing good. On Instagram, not on... Wow. No, I don't understand Apple Podcasts. I got right. Spotify down, though. You got Spotify <laughs> down? Okay, mm-hmm. well, there we go. All right. So, um, yeah. So, help us like, review, subscribe. And um, what did you do this week? We just talked about this, and I already forgot. We, t- uh, we talked about it on our Behind the Queens. What did oh, I do this before. week? Um, you didn't sleep for Oh, yeah. A week. So, this anxiety medicine that I started taking, which you don't get to hear the details of unless you listen to the Behind the Queens. But That's right. Um. It, one of the side effects is basically insomnia. For So for two weeks, I've slept less than three hours a night. And that's why Evan and I did not record on Saturday because <laughs> I was like, I feel like a complete psycho right now. So I'm just going to stay home and wrap myself in a blanket and stare at a computer screen for 12 hours because that's all I can mentally handle. Yeah. But um, today, last night, I got a really good night's sleep and I feel fully refreshed. And I think that most of the side effects, I think I, my body's adjusted and I think I'm um, hopefully good to go. Yeah. We'll find out tomorrow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I did a lot of video games. My meme page on Instagram hit 10K followers. I know. And... What is it? Gaby Unicorn? Gaby Unicorn. Follow 10K it, strong. If you want to watch, um, just look at a bunch of like weird stuff. It's like 18 plus. Um... <laughs> What else did I do? I did something. Oh, David and I have gone out like a lot, a lot. We've gone to a lot of dinners. It seemed like you've been going out Yeah, a lot. we've gone to a lot of dinners. We've gone to um, different events. We've went and watched Drag Race. So the less anxiety that I've had, the more I've been able to go out and enjoy things because I'm not constantly like freaked out about leaving the house. Yeah. So that's nice. That's good. I have I don't know how you are able to do that. Like once, probably every other week, Samantha and I go out with our friends Sam and Crystal, and we'll do something. But like other than that, and and a half of that time is us going to over to one of each other's house and watching TV. Like that. Oh, I hate going out. <laughs> like don't, I'm not enjoying this. This yeah. is for David. This is all for David. This is I like. I'm good with once a week, once every other week, going to dinner, and that would be like the extent of my yeah. like going out and enjoying that and i would be completely happy with that he likes to go out like yesterday i was like oh my god i'm so excited i get to sit in pajamas all day it's sunday he hasn't had a day off in two and a half weeks because he's just been taking overtime and all this other stuff he's gonna want to stay home and this motherfucker is like okay come on let's put some clothes on we're gonna go to starbucks and then we're gonna go to joanne i gotta get some fabric and then we're gonna go to walmart because i need to pick up this stuff (laughs) and i'm like are you fuck you don't know how to relax yeah like no, I don't. He, he doesn't, doesn't get it that like I need to not do things mm. outside of the house. Like that's a need. <laughs> like this week he's filming on Tuesday, then on Thursday he's has an event, then on Saturday he has an event. How does he not? I don't understand because he's an introvert too, and that's what I, I think like. he might be more extroverted. Maybe I think he, he like changed. I think he flipped Maybe. the switch. But let me tell know. you, it's too much. And this week, he's I'm not going to anything with him. So I'm going to sit in my house and I'm going to play video games and enjoy my alone time because he worked from home for an entire week. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have any alone time for an entire week. <laughs> so, so I'm going to be like, bye, dear. Have a great time. Lock bye, the, like immediately bye. lock the door and turn the light off. Like, bye, don't come back <laughs> for a couple hours at least. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like me with Samantha. Although Samantha does that to me sometimes too. And she acts like... She doesn't do it to me, but she does. Like they're like on Sundays, cause I so I was home for two months because I wasn't working. And then like the first Sunday that I had to work and she had the house to herself, she's like, "Oh my god, yes, bye, get out." Mm-hmm. So you need that space for you each do. Other. You know what? It's like having him there is the greatest thing ever. But there are some times <laughs> where I'm just like, "You need to get the fuck out of the house," exactly. because he works from home. like his last job. He worked from home two days a week, mm-hmm. and it. Because they were like his late shifts, he worked till seven, and he was like working till seven p.m. at the office. And I was like, "Thank God, I get home at four. I have three hours where I can completely do whatever the fuck I want without any like trying to make sure he's entertained. Like I can just yeah. be myself." And then he started working those shifts from home, so I had mm. no like downtime. And I was like, "This is no. too much." No, no, I love I love my schedule now because I'm off Fridays and Saturdays. Samantha's off Saturdays and Sundays, so Saturdays is our day. Even mm-hmm. though you keep wanting to record on Saturday mornings. Um, but like Fridays is my day, Sundays is her day, Saturdays we're together. And I'm also home in the evenings now. So like, whereas before I wasn't really home in the evening, so it was harder. And it's perfect. Like, well, I, I'm Monday through Friday and David is off on Friday and Sunday, but he works from home Saturday. If he didn't work from Uh, home Saturday, I'd have that whole day, but you know, it's fine 
But <laughs> I'm just like sometimes, like when he has events, sometimes I don't go strictly because I'm like, no, I need some fucking yeah. me time. You got to have your me time. Mm-hmm. Got to have it, kids. All right. So that was 10 minutes of Evan and I talking about how much we enjoy when our spouse leaves the house. <laughs> so it's great. We're in great relationships. No, we are. Um, but yeah, we should talk about Eleanor because this is a long ass script and we're going to try to fit it into a normal podcast episode. All right. So you know what that means, folks? That means buckle in. Buckle in. We're about to get through some shit. We're going to probably not spin <laughs> off as much as normal, or we are, and this will turn out to be a two-hour episode. We'll find out. <laughs> Nobody knows. Next week, it's going to be a mini-sode, so like we're hoping this kind of balances if out. If you need to listen to this as a two-parter, I understand. Just make sure you start it over from the beginning, and then just catch up so we get that second <laughs> download. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> so, right. you want to start off? I feel like I started off last right, time. All right, all you right. can You start off, good sir. Today we cover one of the most well-known feminist icons of the 20th century, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. She was by far one of the most influential and active partners of any sitting president. She also held the title of First Lady longer than any other individual since her husband was the only president to ever serve more than two terms. Due to their power, prestige, and 12 years in the White House, the Roosevelts have long been viewed as a form of American royalty. And with their distinction follows the usual amount of rumors and gossip which people have passed along for decades. While we may not have kings and queens in America, we still love to speculate and dish on the rich as much as any other nation. And few families have ever provided so much fodder for the gossip columns as the Roosevelt's. I don't know, the Kennedys probably have just oh, as much. Oh, the Kennedys, yeah, yeah. No, the Kennedys <laughs> are definitely by far, but see, that's because the Kennedys are closer to us. Before the Kennedys, it was the Roosevelt's. That's true, that's true. Yeah, so... One of the biggest questions posed has been whether Eleanor Roosevelt was a lesbian. And though we can't quite slap that label on the former president's wife, we can tell you one thing. Eleanor Roosevelt once fell in love with a woman, and their affair would forever shape both their lives. But what did it mean? How did they fall in love? What Was this Eleanor's only female romance? What did it mean for the Roosevelt's marriage? As always, we're here to answer those questions the best we can, but before we go any further, we would like to acknowledge our main source, Eleanor and Hick, the love affair that shaped a first lady by Susan Quinn. Um, So yeah, like 90, almost all of this is from that book. I mean, it's like a general biography. basically copy and pasted. Did not copy and paste. (laughs) I wrote it in my own words, okay? This is my book report. But... Um, but yeah, but I mean, I read the book and, and it's like, it's a good, it's like a biography of Eleanor and even Franklin himself too. And also of, uh, Lorena Hick. So it's a, it's a pretty good book. I recommend it. Born on October 11th, 1884, Anne Eleanor Roosevelt grew up in wealth and notoriety. Her parents were New York aristocrats who both came from affluent and powerful families. As evident, as evidenced by the 1901 presidential election of Eleanor's uncle, Teddy Roosevelt, her mother was incredibly beautiful and seemed ashamed of her daughter's plainness. That sucks. I do. It's really hard. She was like at a very young age. Like, She's like the Meg. She's the Meg of the family. <laughs> Eleanor was a Meg. She's like, Eleanor, you're mm. Meg, you're disgusting. And <laughs> Anne Roosevelt was really beautiful, but still, that's a shitty thing. That is. At least that is how Eleanor remembers her mother's perception of her. Probably because Anna Roosevelt called her daughter Granny due to the child's constant seriousness. Which I understand that because David told me yesterday that I have two, like, looks. Uh-huh. He's like, you either dress like a 40-year-old man or a slob. And I was like, wow. That's, that's true, though. That is true. I think that's true for both of us. <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, then you pick out my outfits, why don't you? If you want me to look younger, I don't well, know how you, to you're dress. You're supposed to be relaxing. Like, what, if you either you have a relaxed day or you have a dressed up day. I don't know what people want. Right. I'm trying to dress for comfort because if I'm going to be going to this event that I do not want to go to, at least I can go to the event in comfort. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> what he doesn't recognize is that you have levels levels to your slobbishness, and you could be the I worst could, slob if you want to. I could to. drop all the way down. Like, you want to go there, buddy? <laughs> it's like, if you want me to be a slob, I know how to be a slob. <laughs> Her father, Elliot, was much more charming and tender with his little girl. However... He was an alcoholic and often sent away or simply disappeared for long periods of time. And though she was certainly privileged in almost every sense of the word, Eleanor was not above hardships and pain. By 10 years old, both her parents had died. Anna Roosevelt passed away due to diphtheria, a disease that swells the throat and tonsils and causes respiratory issues, along with heart failure and other complications. That was basically coronavirus before coronavirus. Probably. It was the... It was mm-hmm. a, actually, it's diphtheria still happens oh. around the world. 
Elliot Roosevelt died due to his alcoholism. After being locked away in a sanitarium, a common treatment for alcoholics until the 1960s, Eleanor's father threw himself out of a second story window to stop his withdrawal tremors. It is important to pause here and remind folks that alcohol is the most dangerous substance to detox on alone, followed by opiates and benzos. If you are trying to get sober, please make sure you reach out and get some help. Call 800-662-HELP or you can text recovery now 839863 and let someone guide you through the early stages. Um, I don't know much of detoxing because I've never been through it. Maybe minor detoxes, Mm -hmm. but from, you know, from yeah. like a weekend of drinking, but that's nothing compared to somebody who actually goes through alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen, I've watched a lot of intervention and seeing the detoxing portion, it looks terrifying. Yeah. And a lot of people on there say they don't get sober because they don't want to go through that. So don't go through that alone. Yeah. Make sure you have somebody or some, someone or somewhere that can help you. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, because alcohol is legal, they don't think about like, you know, you would think like, oh, heroin or cocaine would be mm-hmm. the worst thing to detox. But alcohol is the most dangerous. Like few people die from detoxing off of uh, heroin or cocaine, but a lot of people die when they're detoxing and alcohol because you know, they need, they need help. So yeah, you want to make sure that you go to a detox center. Most hospitals have them or you're in a rehab if you're going to be detoxing. So with the passing of both her parents, Eleanor was sent to live with her grandmother, Mary Livingston Ludlow. Ludlow. Wow. I've never seen that name. Ludlow? The Ludlows? It's probably Ludlow. I probably, yeah, whatever. Probably. Mary, like her daughter, Anna, was distant and struggled with intimacy and affection. As a result, Eleanor often felt she was neglected and cast aside. Even in her mother's death, she still competed with Anna Roosevelt's beauty, and Eleanor referred to herself as the ugly duckling of the family. That sucks. <laughs> I know, it's sad. She also fought bouts of depression, which she seems under, which seems understandable due to the deep loss of her parents' death. As a response, she replied, she relied on her own strengths. She was incredibly smart and quickly learned from those around her. She knew also that there was much more to life than just her looks. Even as young as 14, she wrote in one of her diaries, no matter how plain a woman may be if... What? what? She didn't put punctuation in. Apparently, so. she does not know how to put punctuation. This is well, one do, sentence. Don't just go shitting on Eleanor, okay? She does not. This is one Everybody sentence. Everybody shit on Eleanor. You going to gain up on her I too? I can see why. <laughs> she did this to herself. <laughs> no matter how plain a woman may be, if truth and loyalty are stamped upon her face, all will be attracted to her. I can't even understand it because it's so long. Because is she saying that like truth and loyalty is above beauty? Like people will still see find you beautiful and love you um, if you can read that. If you're true and loyal, if you don't stop <laughs> shitting on Eleanor, her struggles to accept herself caused her to be much more aware and empathetic than many of her fellow socialites. Which is a actually probably her shitty life was probably very beneficial for a lot of people because she had that increased empathy oh yeah absolutely because i mean if she didn't have that i mean she would have just been an asshole like mm-hmm. like or, every other rich person yeah exactly but it was it was definitely because she always felt i mean losing her parents and then always feeling like she was outcast like it gave her a needed empathy you know in 1902 a year after her uncle's election to the presidency eleanor had her coming out party no, not the one you're thinking of. She made her social debut after returning from three years of study abroad in London's Allenswood Academy. Though on the outside it was a finishing school um, meant to turn Eleanor into a refined and respectable lady, it was also one of the most progressive places Eleanor had ever been. The rumors swirled that the headmistress Marie Souvestre, 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 I, l- I listened to it, and, but I wrote this like a week ago. Marie Sylvestre was a lesbian. She founded Allenswood with love interest Caroline Dussat and later lived on site with her longtime partner, Paulina Semey. Marie was also the inspiration of a famous lesbian novel of the time, Olivia, which told the story of a young student who had a major crush on her headmistress. That's such a naughty thing. <laughs> it is, but even in the 1900s, people were writing the schoolgirl. Mm-hmm. That everybody, people have been obsessed with that storyline for at least a century. it's a great storyline. It is, if you're of age and everyone's can. Whether this was the first lesbian influence in Eleanor's life, we do not know. But Allenswood, she... 
But at Ellenswood, she found freedom and purpose she had never known. The women there did much more than polish their social graces. They protested the injustices they saw in the world and took action to make a difference. There would be years before Eleanor would see herself as a suffragette or a feminist. She did become more involved in social justice. And therefore, she became more involved with lesbians, forming many deep friendships with women along the way. Though her grandmother summoned her away from Ellenswood in 1902, Eleanor would continue writing headmistress Sylvestre. Marie. (laughs) And when Marie passed away in 1905, Eleanor began to keep a picture of the headmistress on her desk. Clearly, this was a person who made a a deep impact on the young woman's life. All throughout, so the thing is about Eleanor Roosevelt is like, and we'll talk much later about why she may not have been specifically a lesbian, but she was heavily influenced by lesbians her entire life, from her headmistress to the, the good friends that she had. So like, all those lesbian undercurrents. She, lesbian undercurrents <laughs> all around Eleanor till the day she died. And I can't stress that enough. Like, literally, she had more lesbian friends than I do. <laughs> So after arriving back to the States, Eleanor began a courtship with her fifth cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. There seems to be a lot of controversy and discussion over why the two eventually wed. It does seem that they were very fond of each other and probably in love. However, there was also the practical reasons behind the marriage. Franklin was looking to get into politics and that meant he needed to fit He needed to fit the image of the day. Eleanor was classy, refined, and exceptionally wealthy. They both saw the benefits of their union and became engaged in November of 1903. Which, and among rich families, marriages like that are very common. Yeah, you know, you just form, you marry someone who is also wealthy, or someone who has a lot of connections, or you know, the whole purpose of the marriage is to further your interests. Exactly. Yeah, they're all they're all arranged marriages, and. And they don't even care because honestly, they're so rich that they can do whatever the fuck right. they want. And they know they'll just sleep with whoever if they want yeah. to. Like it's not, there's no bindings by it other yeah. than like, oh, we're married. We're this picture perfect family. Yeah. Um, yet not everyone was pleased. Franklin's mother, Sarah Delano, absolutely ha- hated Eleanor. It's probably because she was so plain. <laughs> but Jesus. according to this, it was because of her protests that the couple waited a year and a half to finally get married. On March 17, 1905, the couple wed in a grand ceremony with President Teddy Roosevelt walking his niece down the aisle. The wedding made all the front page news and the couple captured the imaginations of people across the country. When asked what it was like for a Roosevelt to marry a Roosevelt, Franklin quipped it. Franklin quipped, it's a good thing to keep the name in the family. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. It's, a, all, it's all weird. Yeah. Just keep <laughs> it in the know. family. <laughs> okay. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. If it's like Jones or Smith, I'd be like, that's pretty easy. But Roosevelt is a hard name. But they were fifth cousins, so I mean, it's fine. There's not going to be any like, yeah, you know, genetic defects no or anything like that. So as the couple settled down, Franklin's career shot off, and Eleanor relatively faded from the spotlight. Though she carried the so-called prestige of Franklin Roosevelt's wife, the prestige of being Franklin Roosevelt's wife, she was given little freedom to do anything outside the home. Sarah Delano was controlling and belittling, micromanaging every element of Eleanor's life. In addition, Eleanor became a mother to four children in the first five years of marriage. And as Franklin climbed the social and political ladder, ladder, Eleanor often felt trapped and alone. She struggled with her lack of maternal desires, and it wasn't helped by the fact that Sarah Delano declared herself the children's true mother. These years were especially hard and dark for Eleanor. Which I've actually, um, I don't have any experience with maternal instincts, obviously, but Mm -hmm. I've watched um, several things and I see a lot of the mothers in both fiction and nonfiction who say like they're holding their baby and they're like, I just don't feel anything for it. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine how hard that is. Yeah. I don't know how you get to that. I don't know how that happens, but I can only imagine like, because you're supposed to be like this lovey obsessed mother, right? And if you don't feel that way, you probably just think like, what's wrong with me? Why am I broken? Yeah. And I don't know the, the background of it, but I can just imagine the feeling. Well, I think there's a couple things. I mean, there's postpartum depression, which plays into that. But there are women also who just never wanted to be a mother, but it, especially in this era, 1911. Yeah, you didn't like, have a choice. You know, you, that's your role. You're going to be a mother. And you're just like, okay. And and, uh, and also that's really hard on any person to have four children in five years. Yeah, your body like, never recovered. It never recovers. And so if you have a depression, it just keeps going deeper and mm-hmm. deeper. And so it's just so unhealthy. Yep. And in 1911, a break came when Franklin was elected to the New York Senate. Eleanor and the children were able to move away from the controlling thumb of Sarah Delano. 
A few years later, the family moved again when Franklin took a job on the administration of President Woodrow Wilson. This was Eleanor's first real introduction to Washington, D.C., and though it was a bit of a shock, in time she found that she quite enjoyed being a part of the political scene. Along the way, Eleanor had borne two more children, bringing the grand total to six. She took her role as a wife and mother in stride, and although she was not very happy, she did find solace in her ability to help Franklin. She provided an image and a life for him and felt that was enough. But in 1918, she would learn that her sacrifice was in fact not enough for the aspiring politician. One day while unpacking his luggage from a recent trip, Eleanor came across a packet of love letters between Franklin and his secretary, Lucy Mercer. The betrayal was more than she could bear. 13 years she, for 13 years, she had stayed at home, burying him children, rearing his children, betraying the perfect image he needed to succeed in the world of early 1900 politics. And in return, he had left her alone, disregarded her needs, and now cheated on her with his secretary. It wasn't even the fact that Franklin had slept with another woman. In truth, Eleanor once confessed she didn't care for much for sex at all, but rather the betrayal of their commitment to their future. Franklin was planning to leave Eleanor for Lucy Mercer. So this was like... I would have killed his ass. Right? Uh, that would have been it. <laughs> I would have <laughs> like, been on snap. Motherfucker. So this was like a huge turning point in Eleanor Roosevelt's life because she had, she had been like, it's okay. It's like what we do. Like, we're like, it's fine. I'm doing this for the greater good, blah, 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 blah. And then you realize that like you are living in hell and the person that you're living in hell for is going to go out there and like have his cake and eat it too. Like, yep. no, bitch. I don't think so. And this... It was as horrible as it was. It was also like the best thing. Her finding those letters was like the best thing that happened for her in the end. Complete revolution. Yeah. So the divorce never happened. Sarah Delano was not about to let her son throw his future in the trash. She threatened to disinherit him if he left Eleanor. Political advisors warned him that the move would be career suicide. And no doubt there were the other social implications of the day. In the end, Franklin stayed. But their marriage was never the same. And though the scandal broke Eleanor's heart, in many ways it also freed her. From that point on, she no longer felt confined to her role as a wife and mother. She began to seek new hobbies and interests and became in the D- and became involved in the DC political scene. She also made new friends. Yeah, and so like this was like literally it was like um she moved on and she was like, That's it. Like, you know, like she loved her kids and whatever, but like she that no longer became her priority. Mm-hmm. Being FDR's wife and him, the mother of his children, was her second on her list. Mm-hmm. And she just started doing everything. Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman were a couple and two of Eleanor's dearest friends for many years. Together, the three women often lived together at one of Roosevelt's smaller properties, Val Kill. It was a cozy cottage that lay in the much larger Roosevelt estate known as Hyde Park, and it was the only property that Eleanor ever owned completely to herself. It was also the first site of her own business venture when she, Nancy, Marion, and Carolyn O'Day started Val Kill Industries, a small handcrafted furniture business that became moderately successful over the next 20 years. As such, Val Kill was Eleanor's true home, a world where her friends saw the real Eleanor and allowed her a normalcy that she did not get in everyday life. Whether or not there were more to the friendship we do not know, there is not evidence. However, Eleanor Roosevelt's life was full of gays and lesbians, and she always seemed to be most comfortable in the middle of a queer crowd. She was building furniture. Come on. <laughs> building furniture, living out on a farm with two of her best gal friends, and there was nothing gay about it, I'll tell nope, you that. Nope. Totally straight. They were just good roommates. That's it. <laughs> She would, need her, she would need her support system even more in 1921 when Franklin contracted polio and nearly died. Eleanor nursed him back to health, but he would never walk again. Discouraged by his paralysis and encouraged by his mother, Sarah, to quit politics, Franklin Roosevelt almost walked away from everything. <laughs> that was a, that was a I, very poor choice of words. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't think about it. <laughs> but, but Eleanor would hear of no such thing, though their marriage was now a formality born solely on friendship. Eleanor knew that Franklin was meant for greatness. She convinced him to continue fighting for his political dreams. And while he took his time recuperating, Eleanor set out on her own journey into politics. In 1924, she she campaigned for Democrat Al Smith against her very own cousin, Republican Theodore Roosevelt Jr. The family was aghast at the scandal, but Eleanor was no longer a timid housewife constrained by her societal ties. Four years after the upset, she took the position as the head of the women's division of the Democratic Party. That same year, Franklin was making his own comeback by winning the governorship of New York State. 
Though Eleanor never liked the duties thrust upon first ladies of either the governor's mansion or the eventual White House, she did love the politics of it all. Together, she and Franklin were making quite a political powerhouse. So when FDR decided to run for president in 1932, Eleanor joined him with only slight hesitation. The 1930s brought a series of personal and political ups and downs. It was the decade that began to define and solidify the Roosevelt's legacy, a decade which brought them both much pain as well as triumph, and the beginning of one of Eleanor's deepest and most exciting affairs. It all started when a young reporter named Lorena Hickok, Hick for short, was assigned to do a piece on the potential first lady. Eleanor Roosevelt had been in the public's mind since her grand wedding to Franklin 17 years prior. In addition to being the former governor's wife, she had also begun to make a name for herself as a woman's rights and civil rights activist. The editor, the editor of the Associated Press thought it would be a good idea to get a story on Eleanor and the etiquette of the time demanded that a woman would be more suited for the job. Um, this was due to the nature of the job as it would require long hours and intimate moments with the first lady. So Hick packed, Hick packed her duffel and spent the next several months traveling the country with Eleanor on Franklin's campaign trail. Oh, mm. <laughs> it's a little spicy. Yeah, they're like, oh yeah, we'll send a lady with her because then she'll be safe. Yeah, nothing's <laughs> gonna happen. Nothing's gonna happen there. Lorena Hickok was a short, feisty, and meant to be a reporter. In many ways, the two women were so different and yet had so much in common. Raised on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, Lorena never had any money and often struggled to eat. Her mother, also named Anna, just like Eleanor's, died when Lorena was 13. Her father was an alcoholic, but unlike Eleanor's father, he was never loving or charming, and instead he beat Lorena mercilessly. When she was 14, her stepmother threw her out onto the streets and Lorena learned how to fend for herself. She caught a bit of a break in her late teens when an aunt took Lorena to live with her in Chicago. At an early age, Hick knew she was a lesbian, and like many poor queer people, she found a home in the underground scene. No doubt, she quite enjoyed the queer life of Chicago during the late 1910s and into the roaring 1920s. I bet those were some fun. Oh, some I bet it was event. awesome. Well, it wasn't, but it was. The, I mean, it, well, that remember that was a very free time in America. That's true. When you were queer, yep. like the 1920s into the early 1930s was very free and it was very expressive. I bet it was. I bet the parties and events were like so fun. Off the wall, yeah. She went to college, but later dropped out. As smart as she was, Lorena never felt she fit in with society folks. She didn't have a formal education, she swore like a sailor, and she was much more comfortable in a pair of men's slacks and cap than she was in a dress and heels. Instead, she began to take odd jobs at rag magazines, building her skills as a writer and journalist. Along the way, she fell in love with gossip columnist Ella Morse. The two were together for eight years before Ella before Ella suddenly left Hick and eloped with a former boyfriend. Devastated and in need of a change, Lorena moved to New York City and took a position at the New York Daily Mirror before eventually landing a job with the notable Associated Press. Her work on the lump the Lindenberg baby kidnapping catapulted her into notoriety and by the 1930s she was the most well-known female reporter in the country which what a fucking journey right like, it's crazy like mm -hmm. she she built herself up from nothing like she learned how to write on the on the road like or you know just like that's why we always say you can teach yourself anything. You just have to put in the effort. Yeah, you got to put in the effort. And I, and she had a little bit of a talent for it too. But like she, yeah, she just like read what other people did, and she she copied it, and she, mm -hmm. you know, and she worked her way up, you know, to just work to start at like the rag magazines and become part of the Associated Press, which was one of the most w well respected, um, like journalist papers in the entire country at the time. Eleanor and Lorena were two women instantly drawn to one another who both admired and respected each other's strengths. As different as they were, there was a connection that would bind them for the next 30 years. Lorena saw a side of Eleanor that no other person ever had or ever would see. She perfectly balanced the job of reporting on the president's wife while also protecting Eleanor's secrets and fears. Their affection for one another became so obvious and open that rumors and murmurings began to swirl, and it was becoming harder and harder for Hickok to remain objective in her reporting. She had fallen deeply in love with Eleanor, and the feelings appeared to be mutual. On March 5th, 1933, Eleanor wrote the first of thousands of letters that would pass between the two women over the following decades. Her letters were extremely long, 10 to 15 pages, so we won't read the whole thing. <laughs> no shit. That's our whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> Only a snippet to show the love that had developed between the first lady and the reporter. Eleanor writes, Hick, my dearest, 
I cannot go to bed tonight without a word to you. You have grown so much to be part of my life that it's empty without you, even though I'm busy every minute. All my love, and I shall be saying to you over thought waves in a few minutes, good night, my dear one. Angels guard thee, God protect thee, my love enfold thee all the night through. Which, I mean, I'm in my head, I'm like, how the fuck could you write 15 pages? That's so much. But like, we're in such constant communication today that it yeah. probably seems crazy. But at that time, if you're only seeing that person for brief periods of time, you know, I don't know how long they would go between. Oh, this was every day. Oh. Eleanor wrote Hickok every day. How do you have 15 pages of conversation every day? That is okay. Uh, Eleanor loved to write. So like she and she wrote people long letters, but her and Hickok wrote and these Hickok was never like, oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> Three years in and we got and another 15 pages. But, and then if Hick, Hick didn't reply, Eleanor would be like, Hick, aren't you getting my letters? <laughs> what, like, lady, I don't have time to read these letters. <laughs> she just piles them up and every Monday goes through them. All right, like, here we go. <laughs> so, no, but Hick wrote to her almost every day, but she didn't write quite as frequently. And Eleanor would occasionally complain, like, why aren't you responding to my letters? Don't you miss me? It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> the letters only deepened in intimacy over time. The women expressed a desire to hold one another and kiss each other. They both gushed about their affection and love for one another. Remember, Eleanor wrote to Hick, no one is just what you are to me. I've never enjoyed being with anyone the way I enjoy being with you. They traveled up and down the East Coast in Eleanor's light blue Buick convertible, escaping the crowds and presidential rigmarole and Eleanor's security detail, much to the chagrin of the Secret Service whom J. Edgar Hoover had put on Eleanor's tail, partly because he despised her liberal politics and partly because he was certain she was sleeping with Lorena Hickok. Remember, this is in the middle, uh, or this is right before the beginning of the Lavender Scare. Mm -hmm. The little blue car gave the two women freedom and privacy, and for a few years it was enough. But the demands of Eleanor's schedule and the unrest of the country recovering from the Great Depression put a great strain on their relationship. Hick had left her position at the Associated Press in order to be closer to Eleanor. In response, Eleanor got Lorena a post as chief, as chief investigator for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, part of the FDR administration's New Deal initiative to put the to pull the country out of depression. Lorena's job was to travel the country to the poorest and most vulnerable areas and report back her findings. That doesn't seem like a way to get somebody close to you. <laughs> go, go all over the country. Well, it would be that she could by working for the uh, the by working for the government. Like she could be closer when she was in Washington, and also, which I didn't put in here, a lot of times Eleanor went with her on the trips. Oh, that's kind of so they cool. could be like oh, Eleanor was like out as a um, ambassador for FDR, mm -hmm. and Lorena was reporting. So there you go. Though most of her work wouldn't get published until long after her death, and in fact, much still is unavailable to the public today. Still, Lorena Hickok presented some of the most detailed and thorough reports of the Depression ever written. In many ways, she often felt that her love for Eleanor had reduced her to a second-rate reporter. But her talent and mastery show through, through in the reports she presented to the government. It was because of her findings that many, many areas unknown to the administration would end up receiving federal aid. So yeah, so she goes out to these really poor areas and she she was such a beautiful painter of pictures that she'd be like, you know, there's I, she like there was one place in Michigan where she's like the people are starving here and she wrote in detail about it and so and obviously she has an in with Eleanor and Eleanor um you know, made sure that they got aid. I mean, they couldn't do, she, Lorena couldn't do that with everywhere, but she was, she accurately reported what was happening mm -hmm. in the country. And that was, that was huge. And, and of course she had a really tender heart. And so, you know, if she really felt that you've got to help these people, she would go and she would advocate for them until they got the help they needed. There you go. And while Lorena was crisscrossing the country, Eleanor was hard at work as well. She often, she's most often remembered for her writing, a skill which Hick helped her cultivate. The first lady would author six books and write over 3,000 news articles, including her daily, comment, her daily column, My Day, which ran for 27 years. And she wrote it six days a week for 27 years and almost never missed. Jesus. Yeah. She was also the most politically active first lady to ever fill the position, though her presidential title often served as a conflict of interest and kept her from holding certain positions. She still remained active in social justice, working with the democratic convention, the NAACP and the national urban league. When the daughters of the American revolution refused to allow black singer, Marian Anderson to perform for their convention, Eleanor made a public show of resigning her position as, as the D and calling out their racism. 
Watch that fucking hurt them for sure. Oh, yeah. Imagine that, like the first lady. Oh, yeah. Like marching down there openly and being like, if you're not, and she wrote it in her My Day column, like, if you're not going to, you know, if you're going to support this form of racism, I'm not going to be on board. Wow. And it should be noted that despite their progressive values, there was still racism and bias in both Eleanor and Hick. However, 30 years of letter also showed the evolution of two women who both had to learn to see past their privilege and ignorance. Eleanor was a very wealthy and powerful white woman who sometimes took her privilege for granted. And Lorena came from an uneducated and poor background and assumed that that justified her use of slurs and derogatory remarks. We say none of this to justify those tones, only to point out how they both grew past their biased beliefs. And they both remained open to change and evolution, especially Eleanor. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, you you read the letters like you're going to see things that are racist. And like um, Lorena especially used slurs that were awful. But... Eleanor a lot of times would call her out on it and you see how it changed. Like the more active they became in these poor and marginalized communities, especially the more active Eleanor became as the first lady, the more that they, they saw what they were saying was wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and it's they evolved part of growing as a person, so, you exactly. know, and it's that thing of, yeah, your grandparents and your parents said that just grow the fuck up. Yeah. Unlearn listen, it. listen to people. That, and that was a thing like as Lorena cro- crisscrossed the country and she would say these things and then she would be around people who were poor, who were black, who were Latino. And she would say these things and people would call her out for it. She would realize I shouldn't say those mm-hmm. words. I shouldn't use these terms. And then there's also the fact that terms that were considered OK in the 1950s would not be considered okay, right. or 1940s would not be considered OK today, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. Perhaps it was their desire to grow and evolve that kept their friendship so strong when others fell by the wayside. In 1947, Eleanor closed down Valkyll Industries, essentially ending her friendship with Marion and Nancy. There seemed to be many reasons for hard feelings but that, that had built up between the three women. For one thing, Marion and Nancy both despised Hick and considered her too lowbrow for Eleanor. Yet it was their arrogance and self-absorbed attitudes as a whole that had won- that had worn on Eleanor. Her friends were the wealthy white gays that seemed only concerned with their problems and could care less if people of color were being denied rights. They saw the poor as charity projects, but not as humans deserving of dignity. In a word, Eleanor had grown past her friends. Hey, that happens. Yeah. Sometimes you wake up and you're like, how could I have been friends with that person? That yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. When Franklin died of a stroke in 1945, Eleanor grieved deeply. Uh, I just want to pause because I didn't put it in here. Um, so when Franklin died, his uh, mistress, Lucy Mercer, the woman who had broken up their marriage like decades before, was the person that was with him. Eleanor wasn't with him when he died. It was Lucy. Ooh. But I mean, she she like had kind of put it to rest by then. Like she did yeah, write some Yeah, but still remark. like they were still close as friends and like just to not be there, even though you're not maybe yeah. intimate and in love with this person you're still friends and like that person's there but you're not yeah that- oh yeah she like she mentioned something about how like you know i learned to accept you know that men will be men but like it obviously hurt her mm-hmm. that you know you know he was she was with him at the time of his death and he was her closest friend and partner for 40 years and though they never had a perfect marriage he always supported and encouraged her in her grief hick was nearby as always Their relationship had shifted and changed so much through the years, and yet they were still a constant in each other's life. Somewhere along the way, Hick had accepted the fact that Eleanor would never be hers alone. Miss Roosevelt was too much a force of nature and had too much she wanted to do in this world. Instead, Hick settled for the daily letters and the moments when they could be together. She lived on site at the White House for several years, then briefly shared an apartment Eleanor rented in Greenwich Village. By the end of the war and Franklin's passing, Lorena had brought had bought herself a tiny college that Eleanor would visit when she could. Yeah, so there was probably, I'd say from like 1933 to 1935 or 36, they were constantly with each other. Like every moment, they constantly did these getaways. But Eleanor was the first lady and she also wanted, and she didn't want to just be like entitled, like she wanted to do things. And Hick had her work. And so mm-hmm. their work pulled them apart. And Eleanor also had a lot of friends. And Lorena was very comfortable to only have like three friends. And so that was a big constant fight for them. Like wherever Eleanor wanted, went, she wanted Hick with her. But Hick was like, but I don't want to go be with those people because I don't like those people. Totally <laughs> understand. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so it was a constant fight in their relationship. And then somewhere along the way, Hick realized like, this is who she is and I'm going to let her go. But they were still... I believe they were still in love and they still appreciated each other, but they also appreciated like life just wasn't going to work out like right. that, you know? 
Over the years, the two women were not committed in a sexual way. The terms of the terms or lack thereof of their relationship are lost on us. We know that in the early to late 1930s, there was a passion and romance intermixed with sudden getaways and midnight rendezvous. It's a little exciting too, you know, yeah. when it's like that when sneaky, you're falling like, in love. you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, and they, especially at that time, like that being able to sneak around. Mm-hmm. It also became a lot harder for Eleanor Roosevelt to sneak around because the more she became Miss Roosevelt, the more it was hard to sneak right. out. So uh, then jealousy and public pressure pushed them apart in many ways, but never completely. No matter where they were or what they were doing, Eleanor and Hick always kept in touch and always looked out for each other. They also always made time to see each other, like whatever they had to do. You know, it might be a couple months in between, but they always made time. As the years passed, Hick took a few other lovers and Eleanor did her best not to let her jealousy show through. Hick, on the other hand, wasn't so good at hiding her green monster. She was open with her frustration and her temper. She wrote Eleanor once, All day I sit on myself, so to speak, disciplining myself, trying to control my impatience, my natural irascibility, my loathing of friction and disorder. She was about to fuck shit up. She was. <laughs> the, labing, the labeling of Eleanor Roosevelt as a lesbian or bisexual has caused immense argument among historians, which is nothing new when it comes to queer history. However, the real discussion goes much, much deeper. Like many issues concerning the LGBTQ, the subject matter is reduced to sex. Did Eleanor have sex with Hick? How did they have sex and how extensive was their sex? Was Hick the only woman Eleanor had sex with? And as always, we are going to reiterate that it doesn't matter. What is obvious from the thousands of letters is that Eleanor and Hick were in love, at least at some point in their lives, and what that looked like in the bedroom is between them. What is also obvious is that Eleanor was in love with at least two men in her life, Franklin, and much later after his passing, passing David Gerwich, who Eleanor already, who Eleanor actually classified as the love of her life. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Ooh, that would suck. What? <laughs> Imagine being Hick, and then oh she's yeah, like, and then she's like, David was. I think she just said David was the love of her life because it was at the end of her life, and he was the most recent affair. I'm just saying, like. I don't believe that because you spent 30 years building a relationship with this woman and I like never was like too far away from her. Mm -hmm. So David Gerwich may have been like the most exciting love of her life, but you know what? Also she gets to decide that not us. Um, There is evidence to suggest that there was some physical intimacy between, well there was, uh, there was physical intimacy between Lorena and um, Eleanor, but But there's another factor that is often ignored. Eleanor stated once that she did not enjoy sex. Her friends and family pointed out that she had an aversion to physical intimacy, and it was actually a common argument in Eleanor and Hicks' early letters. If we were going to put a label on Eleanor Roosevelt, it would be asexual biromantic, meaning that she was asexual but still had romantic feelings and relationships with both men and women. Whatever the so-called real label is, we're keeping Eleanor with the queers. Her list of LGBTQ friends was probably longer than her first list of straight friends. She felt most at home working and living alongside fellow queer individuals, and she tirelessly worked for the equality of all people. And I do think that that's probably, like, I do think that they shared um, intimacy. Like, there were some letters that hinted that, like, last night was amazing. Um, Yeah, if you're asexual, you can still have sex. It just means you're not, you know, it's just not as important or exciting to you is well that's what susan quinn wrote she wrote that um it seemed that eleanor did that because she knew that hick needed it right you're doing it for the other person mostly you know yeah exactly and um and then that was also another reason why i felt like hick kind of like was felt free to go on and find other lovers as well Mm -hmm. because like it just was not something that eleanor felt fulfilling like Mm -hmm. there are other the other parts of the relationship she found very fulfilling but the sexual part she did not right Eleanor lived 17 more years after Franklin's death. She continued to fight for justice and equality all around the world. She even chaired the United Nations Human Rights Commission and helped author the 1948 Human Rights Declaration. She fought, she fought Hoover and McCarthy all through the Reds and Lavender Scare of the late 40s and 50s. And in 1960, she chaired President Kennedy's Commission on the, statute, on the Status of Women, which published one of the first national studies on gender on gender inequality in 1963. But Eleanor never got to see the nation's reaction or the rise of feminism, black power, and LGBTQ activism that all came about in the mid and late 1960s. She passed away from complications of tuberculosis on November 7th, 1962 at age 78. 
And isn't it interesting that she was in, she had a place in Greenwich Village. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I, I thought like about a, that early. Yeah. Such like a queer place in ep, like epicenter even before. One of her favorite apartments, like after Val Kill, the Greenwich, the Greenwich Village apartment was her favorite place. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, come on. She's with the queer. Like, you can't like, tell me that <laughs> she wasn't queer. Come on. She's literally <laughs> surrounded with them. She's just every everywhere. Aspect. And be like, no, no. Hick always said that when Eleanor went, she wanted to go too. She wrote a friend, grief can be a very debilitating thing. I haven't had much energy. I haven't had much interest or energy in anything. But Lorena would not pass for another five years. When her lifetime love died, Hick avoided the funeral. She despised such things. Instead, a friend drove her to Eleanor's grave late that night, and Lorena bought a bouquet of flowers she had picked from the Valkill garden. She said her goodbyes and slowly walked away from the woman who had changed her life in so many ways. On May 1st, 1968, Lorena Hickok died of complications from diabetes. Perhaps if you believe in heaven or in an afterlife, you can imagine the anticipation of their soul's reunion. Maybe it was a bit of an exchange like the one that Eleanor and Hick wrote to one another early in their relationship. Eleanor. Darling, the only real news is I love you. And two weeks and three days from now, you will be here and it makes me all excited inside to think about. Hick. Dear one, I want to put my arms around you and kiss you at the corner of your mouth. And a little more than a week now, I shall. That's sweet. Yeah. And if their story merely ends when it did, at least we can be grateful for a chance to peek into the history and romance of two of the most influential women in American history. Though Hick never got the accolades and biographies of Eleanor, her work and effort for women's, women's rights, civil rights, and more made a lasting impact on our policies today. Your recommended resource is the reference for this episode, Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady by Susan Quinn. We also encourage you to read other biographies about Eleanor Roosevelt or to read some of her own writings, especially during Women's History Month. And don't forget to check out our merchandise and subscribe to our Patreon. That's right. So let those lesbian undercurrents run wild. Surround your well. Everywhere. Everywhere. Swear to God. Did you see my stock photo photo that I shared to our Twitter? Of like, whereas I was like, someone looked up, like they looked up bullying and these girls are surrounding this other girl in a very sexual manner and it's supposed to be bullying. And I was like, <laughs> lesbian other undercurrents. I love that when people don't get subtle. <laughs> you're, answer, like, you're like, um, th- no, this scene is definitely not what's going on like, here. This is not what you think this is. You're showing your straight ignorance here. Like, <laughs> right. It's like, that's something that my mother would think like, oh, this is a great bullying photo. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, the sexual, it's like palpitating. Right. Anyways. Um, stay queer. Don't get a lobotomy. We love you, our little allied hookers. And a little succulent sapphist. This episode was all for you. Not really, but kind of. It, it was mostly for you and our asexuals. Yes, our That's wonderful right. aces. Yeah. Um, have yourself. Oh, wait, we missed one. A little succulent sapphist. And our proud homocrats. And have yourself a sodomy circus. Or don't. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and review wherever you are listening and follow us on social media at Your Queer Story. Like what you heard? Want to share your story? Send us a voice message to add to the podcast from the Anchor app or at anchor.fm slash yourqueerstory. And if you would like to support the work we do or get exclusive content, check us out on patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. See you next week. Bye. Bye.